because the net worth for for a black household is somewhere between like seventeen thousand and like twenty two thousand. So I used the seventeen number, and he was like, "Dang!" So he was like, "That means that like the husband got like ten racks in his bank, and like the wife got like seven. He was like, "And that's the net worth." And I was like, "Yeah, pretty much. Like assuming they don't have any debt, that's what we're saying." He was like, that is crazy. And I was like, it is crazy. Like, it's really hard to believe that. But I know for a fact that I'm humbled, like, especially when I go out of the country. But even here in the U.S., when I go certain places, like where I grew up, I hate going there because I'm like, I literally call it the Great Depression. I'm like, this looks like the Great Depression if I could depict it, the Great Depression. And it reminds me of like, okay, that's why that number is the way that that number is. But the problem with that number being the way that it is, is that it doesn't give people stability. It doesn't give them peace of mind. It doesn't give you the opportunity to really just live your life in a comfortable state. It doesn't give you the ability to think outside of your next meal, outside of your next paycheck, outside of the next bill that needs to be paid. And you get stuck in this very vicious cycle. And then it just bleeds down through your entire generation. You are listening to The Millionaire Talk Show with Charles Oglesby. We're going to be millionaires. And we're interviewing proven millionaires who've built their wealth in real estate, sales, marketing, branding, and other areas by betting on themselves. And now, here's your host, Charles Oglesby. Charles Oglesby. This is The Millionaire Talk Show. Um, thank you guys all for tuning in. We're streaming live on YouTube with uh, Miss Jacqueline Plains. Jacqueline Plains, okay. Jacqueline Plains. So you're, that's kind of a cool-ass name for a, a financial planner. You know, put some respect on my name, all right? <laughs> Certified financial planner. Uh, you know, everybody's got their internet names. I know you do, Todd, so... <laughs> I, I respect it. Oh, so is your last name really not plans? No, it's definitely not plans. <laughs> I, like, I like. I think that's dope because if, for people who probably know this, but like John Legend's last name is not Legend. Alicia Keys' his last name is not Keys. Um, is it Beats? Who Alicia Keys? Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's not Keys. They like they create this name. Like even Jamie Foxx, his name isn't Jamie Foxx. Right. And I feel like when you create this persona, it's like Jay-Z says, like nobody's built like you, you design yourself. So you have to create a name that you can live up to and you can build and grow into. So no, facts, facts, facts. But did you catch the Beats last name though? Like Swiss, Swiss Beats? Oh, <laughs> hey, <bro. Ooh. laughs> Ooh, okay. It's okay. Last we'll get there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Miss um, Plans is a financial uh, planner. She is a co-host of the Melanin Money podcast. And that's kind of how I became. Actually, I'd seen her floating around the timeline, sharing different things. And then when Cofield and George reached out, I noticed there was a third person on the podcast. And I was like, oh, that's you. And I put two and two together. And uh, so here we are now to um, talk business, talk money, talk tweets, because I was scrolling your timeline. There's a lot of things I want to ask you about. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a warm welcome. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. I'm sad that I couldn't be there for the episode out in sunny L.A., but everybody, welcome to my home in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, (laughs) I um, am, am glad to be here. Excited. Hopefully I can drop some gems with those of you listening and um, let's get into it. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about you outside of um, just the surface level, what we already know? Yeah. So I have an interesting story of how I became a certified financial planner. Is that the route you want to go or? We can do that. That's fine. Might have something a little spicier. Let me let me tell you this first and I'll see what I can come up with. <laughs> so I became a certified financial planner. I actually grew up in Sacramento, California, um, like right outside of Sacramento. Are you actually from L.A.? No, I'm actually from San Diego. And um, then I like after college, I moved to L.A. because that's where all the jobs were. That's where everything was going on. Mm, OK, makes sense. I follow. I follow. So I grew up in Northern California, about 45 minutes outside of Sacramento on a thousand acre ranch. And long story short, the property was sold out from under us. So my mom and her sister and, you know, myself and my siblings on my cousins, we lived on the property and the property was sold out from under us. So that led my mom to inherit one point four million dollars. And that's because at the same time that the property was sold, my grandfather passed away. And so she inherited one point four million dollars. And within about five years, she had lost one point five million dollars. 
And I had a lot of questions. I was like, yo, I don't really understand what happened. And I couldn't find anybody to answer my questions. My mom didn't even really know what happened. And so I decided to become the go-to person for financial guidance because I was like, all right, I can't find anybody who knows this stuff. And then even when I started to find people who knew this stuff, I was like, nobody even looks like me. Like I can't even reach those people. So I was like, I have to become that person. So I became a certified financial planner. And here we are. I've been advising for about eight years um, and investing for over 10. So um, usually the question that I ask is what was life like growing up? What was that like? <laughs> growing up um, that's an interesting question because my growing up childhood story is very different from really any that I have ever heard before. So um, not to get like two birds at all, but, you know, I don't know my dad. So I um, my mom is white. My dad's black and Puerto Rican. So I grew up on this property with all of my white family, my white siblings. So, you know, when I was growing up, I used to raise horses on the property. It's a thousand acres. Right. So we used to do everything like I learned how to drive at like nine years old. And I used to drive this truck like around the property. Right. So my my childhood, my upbringing was very different. What you hear is, oh, wow, all of these things. What you don't see is the fact that being land rich is very different from being cash flow rich mm. or having liquid assets, right? Or having investable assets. It's very different from having land. Unless you liquidate the land or you're a really good business person and you can cash flow off of your property, then you basically don't have any money. So I was raised by a single mom, right? Like I have a story that I've shared on our podcast of there was like two years of school that went by that I only had one pair of shoes. So my upbringing was very much we didn't have and like we never had enough. So, you know, it's kind of different. It's a different yeah. story. Um, so after your mom had the money, inherited the money, then she lost it. Like, where did she did she do something to get back into the position that she was in or? No, not really. Um, she still struggles even to this day, like. Even at this point, she had. So what happened was she inherited one point four. Nobody told her about a six figure tax bill that she was going to have. Yeah. So she still to this day owes the IRS a six figure tax bill. And so taxes are the devil. Taxes are mm, something. They are something else. OK. Um, and they will get you any type of way. And I know you live in Cali, so you know all about that. Right. Like I left California. And when you live there and you grow up there, you're like, OK, cool. This is just how life is. But when you leave and then you think about coming back, you're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> right. So like Atlanta has kept me here because I have the international airport. We have the busiest airport in the world. And so I can fly just about anywhere on a straight, you know, one way um, flight. And so it's kept me here. Yeah. But Most people who leave California and go somewhere that's dope, they don't want to come back. And when I say dope, because I've had people who have left and gone to like Florida or have left and gone to like Washington. They're like, no, nah, I'm coming back to California. But if you leave California, you go to Houston, you go to Dallas, you go to Atlanta, you go to maybe Charlotte, North Carolina, like dope spots, Virginia. It's interesting because it's a dope spot for a black person. And California is not really a dope spot for a black person, but it's not a bad spot for a black person. But there's spots that are literally just dope for black people to be in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's why I'm here. Right. So you're just saying look, I'll tell you more about that. But you were saying. So, yeah, my mom lost all that money due to taxes. Right. And so when I moved to Georgia, I lived like an hour and a half, two hours outside of Atlanta. And when I finally came to Atlanta, like the story was actually really funny. So it was what, 15, 16. And I was in this high school and then another young lady had moved. She'd moved from Virginia. Right. And we became friends. And she was like, you know what? She was like, you want to go to Atlanta? We're going to go see my aunt. She said, my aunt lives in a subdivision full of black people. I said, what? She said, yeah, it's a subdivision full of like a bunch of nice houses, but it's all black people. I said, huh? I never seen that before. I got to right. go see that. So like <laughs> when I came and saw it at like 15, 16, I said, oh, I have to go there. Yeah. So I like, came there for college. Right. And so then I go to moved. school. 
for college, I went to yeah. Kennesaw State. That's in that's in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's oh, the yeah. second. It's like first or second largest institution. Has about the same amount of students as UGA. Okay. And so when I came and I saw that, I said, "Oh, I can't leave because I had grown up in really rural areas, and in those areas, even some of the cities I've been to, like I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a while. Even in those cities, I kept seeing what <laughs> what America really is, right? Like the real wealth chasm that we see. Like I, you really see only black people who really just live in poverty. They either rent houses, they live in the PJs or they have apartments, right? You don't see them with, with big houses, like, you know, in nice neighborhoods, like you do in Atlanta. And I was like, Oh no, nah, this ain't for me. Like I went to Tulsa at 19. I was like, Mm-mm. Tulsa is still plagued by what happened. Right. And I was like, mm, I can't be here. I have to go back to Atlanta. And I have settled here ever since. Yeah. Um. All right. So financial planning, the hardest part is getting started and like getting that initial client base. How are you able to do that? So I think that people have to understand that our industry is very divided. So it's really easy to understand this when you have traveled abroad and you have studied other developed countries and their financial planning systems. So, for example, I went to Australia when I got started and I spent two and a half weeks over there really understanding how their financial system and financial planning works. So there's different I won't say levels, but there's different boxes. Okay, Mm. so I started in the fee only box, which is where I've pretty much lived my entire career. So in the fee only box, I am saying that I charge my clients a fee for services. So getting started with that, I started out in mostly salaried positions. So I didn't have to go fishing for clients. That helps. It helps a lot. Um, I know you talked on our podcast about how difficult it was for you to get started and to build your client base. Right. And I had the same experiences. And there was a certain point in my career where I was like, okay, I need to stop fighting this because I'm going to be young in this industry for a very long time. You're young as a financial advisor until you're like 60, 70 years old. So I was like, I'm going to be young for a very long time because I started at 20. So I'm going to be young. I was like, I'm going to be black for sure. (laughs) And I'm going to be a woman for sure. So how can I learn to use those things to my advantage? Because they're not going away. None of those are going to change. And those in the financial planning industry are seen as disqualifiers. They are seen as things that tear you down. And you know why that is? It's because we have to look at where the wealth is in America. If you're going to be a wealth manager, if you're going to be a financial advisor, a financial planner, you are going to advise people who have wealth, who has most of the wealth, right? So when I was getting started, I always took salary positions that had the ability for additional profit sharing or commissions, or I could get money for the clients that I bring in, but I had to make sure that I had a solid salary. But even getting started in my career, I couldn't sit there and just take my financial planning salary. I had to go do other things because I was like, this is not enough. This is not going to cut it. This is, I can't advise a $10 million client and be making $60,000 a year. Like it just didn't work for me. But what that did was you just do? Me. What were you building on the side of these, of, of this uh, financial advising career? Uh, I was going to say something a little out of pocket, but <laughs> no, I, didn't, I wasn't doing anything crazy. But uh, so the first thing that I really started to do was I was like, okay, I have to figure out how to build my income. What can I do? And some things just kind of fell in my lap. There were some things that I was naturally good at. So I chose to work for a solo advisor in my beginning of the career, right? Like I started as an intern, got hired on full time. So when I came in, he was like, cool, I'm gonna teach you financial planning, but I need you to do this, 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 this. Okay. So part of this, 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 this was marketing. So people started seeing like his marketing was looking really well. And people were like, who's doing this right and mind you his clients are small business owners so they're seeing it and they're like hmm i need that right so i said hmm i could do that for you so i started doing consulting so then my consulting started from small businesses and then it went straight into financial planning businesses also <clears throat> you're not supposed to do this as a financial planner because there's a lot of red tape if you hold your securities licenses if you're licensed with finra Um, you have to disclose X, Y, and Z. It's called an ADV, right? It has the part one and the part two. And in this ADV, you have to disclose your outside business activities. Firms don't really like you having outside business activities because one, they have to monitor them. And two, they don't want you doing anything but making money for them. 
So I always had to go around and say, hey, I kind of do these other things mm -mm, or I just had to do them really discreetly. So that was like the beginning of it. Right. And then I also got into real estate. I flipped a few businesses and I started into the digital world. And I was like, all right, we got to make something shake. Because for me, I had an article that went viral on Market Watch. I don't know if you caught it on my um, Twitter, but the title of the article, shout out to Marty, he titled it. I promised myself I would never be broke again. Financial advisor's family loses 1.4 million. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So the That's when you started telling the story. I was like, I've heard this story before somewhere. <laughs> it was it was a lot of people that saw that. I had a ton of consultations off of that. But the never, I promised myself I would never be broke again. That was like one line that I told Marty at the end of our interview where I was 17. And because my mom had lost literally everything and I was going to college with basically nothing, I was like, yo, I would never be in this position again like period so i had to do whatever it took to just figure it out yeah. and that's you know that's the position i got in but it really bothered me like it should bother if anybody is a financial planner they're listening like it should bother you that you're only making x but you're advising clients who are making y and who have built y now you have to build your wealth over time especially if you're starting from zero but you should figure out how to make more money Todd Consultant presents the Vending Machine Business Webinar. You can only have one job, but you can have as many vending machines as you want. This is your chance to see how we do business and how you can start your very own vending machine business. Avoid the mistakes we made and start winning. You'll be shown how we find, negotiate, buy, and manage our vending machine business, generating thousands per month, and how it has unlimited scale. To find out more details, hit us up on the link in the bio, on Instagram at Partner with Millie, or on Instagram at Todd.Capital, or just head over to gumroad.com forward slash Todd Capital. Yeah, I think that um, that's one of the cool things about financial advising, wealth management type of industry is the exposure. And I tell people that it's it's different when you've seen it. So when you've seen somebody and you've seen their accounts and you've seen the kind of income they're making and it's just like astronomical numbers, it changes your mindset. How did that impact you when you're seeing it? It made me be like, oh, you got to hustle harder. <laughs> like you have to hustle harder. And that was a mistake that I made in the beginning because one, I didn't see a blueprint of anybody who was doing what I wanted to do. I just didn't see it anywhere. Like I was like, I don't see a financial advisor who's doing X, Y, and Z. Most financial advisors I know are driving a Prius, a Nissan, like there's no shade to y'all. It's just that's not the life that I wanted. I was like, wait, you're going to tell me that I'm going to advise a client whose salary is literally one point five million dollars a year. But I have to drive around in Toyota Corolla and you're going to pay me seventy five thousand dollars a year. That's a no for me. That's a no for me. Even jobs now, I have, you know, people reach out on LinkedIn all the time. They're like, hey, we see you. We like your experience. We want to pay you $80,000 a year. Huh? Like, I'm a certified financial planner with eight years of experience. You want to pay me $80,000 a year? Absolutely not. So I was like, okay, somebody has to take this next step. Like, that should bother you. And it bothered me. Yeah. And I, and I think it also opens you up to how to get it. Because if you don't get the opportunity to peek behind the veil, you really don't know. So it's one thing to see somebody pull up in a nice car. It's one thing to see somebody with a nice purse. It's another to be like, oh, they own this or, oh, this is what they're invested in or, oh, this is what they do for work. Because then it, it directs you. You can like chasing stuff. You can get stuff a lot of different ways. But when you see how they've gotten the stuff, now you're chasing that one path. And I think that's what's really cool. Um, yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And one of the good things about being around people like that is you'll notice you you literally have to start thinking in abundance. Like if you think that supplies are limited and money is limited and your options are limited, it's going to seep into everything that you do. And so once you start being around people who are this next level of wealth, who have this next level of money, what comes with that is next level thinking. Because in order to keep that money, you have to have next right. level thinking. Right, right, so when they have this next level thinking and you're exposed to it and you're sitting down in meetings and you're having conversations with them, they understand abundance. So they're willing to tell you, I literally did da -da 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 to get to where I am and they'll mm -hmm. break it all down for you and you will have the answers for everything. So true. So true. Um, Man, That's, I feel 
like that's a tip, right? Like that's how you can know. That's how I check people low key. Like I low key check if you really have what you say you have, because if you have what you say you have, you will move with this spirit of abundance and you will be willing to share the information. If you're harboring that information, I'll be like, mm, that really I see online might be fake. Mm, I'm not sure. That's a rented car. Mm, not trying to judge. I'm just saying you're going to move with abundance. Yeah. Yeah. So you tweeted um, two Uh days ago. You said, so we're Uh calling ourselves retired now just because we quit our jobs and started a business. That's crazy to me. Am I the only one? Like, I'm like, listen, this is y'all help me. Y'all help. I can't see the comments, but I know you can comment. Okay, help me make sense of this. If you had a job. Right. And even if during that job, you started your side business. Right. And you start. I did that. I started consulting for other advisory firms. You start your side business, you quit your job, you retire from your job and you run your consulting business. Are you now retired Yeah. or are you still actively working because you still have active income from your business? Stop. Stop flexing. Yeah. I am um, the wrong way. I don't like that extra fluff. When I was last year, I think that I acted as though I, reti- I was retired and um then I realized like work isn't a bad thing. Getting it's up, not. going to the office every day is not a bad thing. And I used to think it was a bad thing because it was associated with the job. And I started thinking like, oh, there's actually things that we do in the job that aren't that bad, y'all. Getting dressed up, getting the haircut is not that bad. Sitting around all day drinking is not a good idea, buddy. And um, it's not. <laughs> and so you're right. It's like I don't tell people that I'm retired. I tell people I'm self-employed. Um, that's, I think. And so it's like, I, it was, I brought that up because I've seen it too. I was like, you're not really retired. Like you run a business and there's nothing wrong with being self-employed, but I could, I can understand why somebody who went working really, really hard. Cause a lot of us worked really, 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 really hard weekends, evenings, multiple jobs, side hustle, side businesses that you just kind of want to take a deep breath. You want to like exhale for a second. And so that could be brief retirement. Like you can, you can retirement doesn't have to be permanent. It doesn't. And it's not for a lot of people because of that reason you just stated of like you, 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 you can't sit around and drink beer all day. If you worked really hard in corporate, it just doesn't happen. I worked the majority of my career with people ages 50 and up and they struggle to retire even at 70 because we're not meant to do literally nothing all day. Like you're really not meant to sit around and just watch TV all day. But (laughs) yeah, like I did tweet that because I'm like, okay, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with saying, oh, I am self-employed. There's nothing wrong with taking a break, but we refer to that break as a sabbatical, guys. Everybody say it with me. (laughs) I'm on sabbatical. I have planned for clients to be on sabbatical for three years. Right. And I had a client who entered sabbatical at the beginning of 2020. Right. So they're still on sabbatical now. And that's perfectly fine. Actually, everybody needs that period of time. And I, I really am thankful for what's happened in 2020 because I'm like, OK, look, we needed to realize like what we were doing was just digging ourselves into these holes because we don't need to do nothing. But we don't need to be overly stressed and working the way that we did. Yeah. Because a lot of people were having a lot of, you know, breakdowns. Right. And I think as millennials, we come in, we're shifting the job market. We're saying, hey, this is what we want. This is what we need. We want this kind of office life balance. Yeah. Working is hard when uh, and, it's, and it's not just hard in the work. Everything that surrounds the job, I tell people that a lot. It's like when you're working a day job, you're not really just working eight hours, 10 hours. It's the time that it takes to get there, the time that it takes to get back home, the time that it takes to recover once you get back home, assuming you have a commute, um, the time that it just takes to prepare for the commute, mentally getting up and all of that stuff before you have to drive an hour or take a train. So you're right. I like that. And hopefully we can find a middle ground. But I don't know if they want a middle ground. It seems like they're pushing people to like gradually get back to the way things were. They're saying, oh, well, you can kind of come in partially now. And then a month after that, we want four days or a month after that, we want three days. A month after that, we want four days. And they want to wrap it back up to that. Do you think that's sustainable? I mean, I it's it's watching the control issues for me, right? Like when I was working my job, we had this system where it was like, okay, you put on the calendar because everybody could see everybody's calendar in the office. You put on the calendar when you're going to be out of office. And so I put on the calendar that I was going to be out of office. That same day, you know, I had gotten a new car and everybody wanted to check out my car. So we checking out my car, whatever. And that kind of led me into my time of leaving the office. 
So my CEO was very upset that day. And he said, oh, from now on, you need to request time off of me. I said, nobody else in the office has to request time off. Like, I get what you're doing here. Like, I understand you're upset because we were all looking at my car instead of working. But, you know, one of the partners was there. So we figured it was okay. But now, because of this control issue, I have to go and request my time off. And I promise you, that was that was the last straw for me. I was like, yo, I'm... I'm out of here. Okay. So then it was like my plan for, for sure to be done with them. But um, all in all, like I had a good working experience there, but I do think that it, like, it's a control issue. And I'm like, when are y'all going to relinquish control? There have been a lot of studies showing that people are working better from home. They're more productive. They're getting what they need to get done. Right. I think most people have adjusted to this and a lot of people expect this remote option. And without having it, I think it's going to be uh, very difficult for a lot of companies to sustain employees for the long term. Like I know you're out there by Facebook. Facebook's average employment um, duration is a year and a half. Like people in tech move all the time because they're like, you're not you're not giving me what I want. It's another tech company out here who will. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that they need to um, understand that if they want to sustain their employees. Um. Man, I had a question and then the Facebook thing kind of <laughs> took me a different way. What was my question? The, the statement I was going to make is that... Had to do with control. It'll, it'll come back to me. How old are you, by the way? You look really young. I look really young? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank I, I mean, you. I, I, can't, I don't know if I'm supposed to ask you that question, though. You're not. But let's play the guessing game. Let's play the... Guessing game. How gonna, old is Jacqueline? I'll let them guess inside of the, the comments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, y'all guess inside of the comments. Guess how old I am. Uh, winner gets a cash app, but only the first winner. I can't um, see the comments, so I'll have to respond to that later. So when did you start seeing success as a financial planner? Day one. <laughs> No, I mean, it, de- it depends on how you define success, right? Financial right. success ugh, took a little while. Um, but I considered myself to be successful from the beginning because I wasn't supposed to be a financial planner, right? Like people who look like us are not supposed to be financial planners, right? And I can tell you more about that story later. But I felt successful just by one getting out there, right? When I started in the industry, I'm pretty sure I didn't even know how to write an email. I think I thought my resume was fire, but I think my resume was really trash from some feedback that I got, right? So I considered myself to be successful just for taking that leap because I had people behind me that were like, you know, you can't be a financial advisor, right? Like, you know, you can't da 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 And I was like, you know what? I'm going to just figure it out. So, you know, I felt successful from the beginning. And then there was a lot of different steps that I took. So in order to become a certified financial planner, you have to have three years of experience in the industry and you have to take um, a seven, eight hour exam. Mm-hmm. And the the CFP, okay, note this down and attorneys, you can fight me in the comments, but the certified financial planner exam actually has a lower pass rate than the Georgia bar. So there's more attorneys that pass for their attorney license than who pass for the certified financial planner exam. And I passed it on the first try. So I think would you get five tries in your entire life to pass this exam, I think, you know, that I started that was that was a really uh, a confidence booster for me. Like I started yeah. to feel more confident as an advisor. Right. Oh, I can't tell me anything. I'm certified now. You know, paycheck went up now. So I started to be more successful as a CFP. Are you also a CFA or no, are you also like, a, no, oh, OK, no, so no, seri- no, no actual. Not. Interesting. So you don't no, necessarily sell securities. You. So as a certified financial planner, it's based on your state, but uh, per your state regulations, you'll have a 65. So I have a 65. Mutual funds, ETFs. Yeah, it's the investment advisor uh, securities license. Right. I can do all of that. Okay. Um, I remember the question I was going to ask you. And the question was, what kind of car was it that they were all looking at? Ah, it was an I-8. Oh, wow. It was an I-8. Yeah. Yeah. I messed up there. That's worthy <laughs> of stopping the show. It was worthy of stopping the show. And like, you know, my CEO can, my ex-CEO can fight me in the comments too. But like what happened was I messed up. Okay. So we had a black doorman, right? And he had seen me pull up in the I-8 and he said, yo, he said, you messed up. I was like, huh? Like, I'm winning. <laughs> 
He was like, you messed up. Like, you can't let them see that you have that. They're going to treat you differently. That's what happened, right? That's why I have mentees because I couldn't find anybody who looked like me who could teach me these things. I just had to figure it out along the way. So, you know, when you start making real money, that's why there's a lot of people that I talk to um, who make real money, 10, 20, $30 million a year. And like the way they show their money is very different from the way other people show their money. And you just have to be careful who you're moving around, right? Like you can't go into a sketchy part of Atlanta and be completely iced out, right? Like you have to do the same thing, even in your corporate life. And it's unfortunate that we have to censor ourselves like this, but there's certain things that you just have to navigate depending on what you look like. Right. Can you tell us in what way do they treat you differently? One. So there's, there's a lot of different ways. And, and I can't always say that it's necessarily being of color, but there was one situation where, um, you know, I was like, yo, y'all should give me a raise because it's time to give me a raise and I deserve it. Right. Go through the whole thing. Well, you see, um, the person who does the same job as you, like he has a mortgage and a family that he needs to take care of. You, you, you don't have a family to take care of. What does that have to do with you paying me what I'm owed? Right, 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 right. Nothing. Yeah, I could I could imagine there would be like some jealousy there as well, because even if they are making the same amount of money as you, if they do have those responsibilities, they can't. I ate it. They're like, man, this Corolla is all I can afford right now. Yeah, and so they, they could be mad at you. They couldn't. And, so like I see you're on the Toro wave, right? So at a certain point, I had a bunch of cars on Toro. And so I'm pulling up like in a different car every day. And they're like, yo, 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 right? Like all this stuff. But little do people know my grandfather, who I spent a lot of time with growing up was a NASCAR mechanic. So, you know, I ride a motorcycle. I've naturally always been into cars and things like that. Um, I have an old school that I'm fixing up now. And when I would have these car conversations with people, right? Because think about it. We're dealing with the next level of money. We talk about things like collectible cars. And I'm not talking about like Lamborghinis and, you know, all of the fancy Ferraris and all that. I'm talking about like actual like collectible cars and things like that, like things that rich people want to have. And so I could carry myself in these conversations where some of these other advisors couldn't. So they would try to come for me and be like, but those cars you got, you rent them out, don't you? Oh, I see the hate. It's cool. It's cool. You just got to, what do you do? You just kind of shrug it off. You say, all right, I showed all my cards to the wrong person. So got to be careful. Yo, it's the Options Trading Workshop presented by Tide Capital. Learn the fundamentals and advanced trading strategies that allow us the chance to earn $20,000 in side money in one year while working a job and running multiple businesses. That's right. Learn the what, the where, and the how of options trading in this exclusive webinar. To find out more details, hit us up on the link in the bio, on Instagram at Partner with Millie, or on Instagram at Todd.Capital, or just head over to gumroad.com forward slash Todd Capital. How do you stay so driven? Um, because, I mean, hearing you talk and hearing you share these different things, you're definitely an above average, if not like top 10%, 1% type person. How did you get there and how do you stay there? Mm, I think it's literally from the, the getting there part. I think it was that promise I made to myself at 17 years old that I would never be broke again. I think that that was the first part. And everybody likes to talk about how it's like, oh, it's not motivation from day to day. It's discipline. You got to have discipline. Like, yeah, that sounds good. But for me, when I get into a tough situation and I feel like I want to give up or quit or you know, pivot or do something differently. I always remind myself that what I'm doing right now is voluntary. Me being here with you, sharing this information with those listening, this is voluntary. Like I don't have to be here. Right. So I don't have to go to work. Like contrary to popular belief, you don't have to go to work. <laughs> you could take the alternative. I don't have to go to the gym at five, six o'clock in the morning. Right. But that's voluntary. So on those mornings when I wake up, it's a, yo, I get to go to the gym, even though I'm rolling out of bed and looking real rough, I get to go to the gym. Right. Then I'm in the gym. And I'm like, dang, I think I'm gonna just call this short. And I have to remember like, this is voluntary. Like you're here because 
because you want to be here because you have the opportunity to be here. So make the best of it. So I try to do that with everything that I do. Just remind myself, oh, this is voluntary. And there is a certain point. So uh, the Pew Research shows, and I'm sure you've talked about this before, that once you're making $70,000 a year, your happiness doesn't increase, right? So you may want to figure out how to make more money, but this is going to sound super cliche. You're going to want to figure out how to have more of an impact. So I wish that I had, I had a good mentor at the time, but like, he just, he was a good mentor, but there's just some things that are different about me. Right. And so I wish that somebody could have told me in the beginning, like, Hey, how do I put this? Just like, okay, what you're doing is cool, but you could be doing more in this type of a way. Mm. Right. So I kind of wish I had somebody who could put that into perspective for me and to help it make sense because yeah, when I started, this is the crazy thing. When I started, so I'm also an accredited wealth management advisor. And what that means is that I have taken extra steps to work with people who have net worths of five million and up. Okay. So it's there's different tactics that you take, right? There's different options, opportunities for you when you have that much wealth. And so as I was learning these techniques to work with ultra wealthy people, my mother was also foreclosing on her home. So my mom is calling me at the same time, like, yo, my house is about to be foreclosed. I'm like, what do I do? And I'm over here like I'm supposed to be the go to person for financial guidance. Yet I don't know what to do with the foreclosure. I'm not learning that, mom. I'm learning how to work with people with five and 10 million. I'm not learning how to work with people who have literally nothing and are in the negative. And so I had to take that next step to say, OK, how can I figure this out? Because like I said, you're making 70,000. So you don't get happier, right? Like you may want to make more money, but you, it's not going to make you happier. It's not going to make you feel more fulfilled. So I'm working with wealthy people. And I was like, hmm, I'm really just making the rich richer. And it's cool. Like I live in that world now where like, I do want to be richer. Let's, let's keep it a hundred. But I also know that the people who will have the biggest transformation from the information that I have don't have all of the money. So how can I create that impact? And so that helps to keep me motivated because some of my business, you'll see I've shifted and I'm like, okay, how can I make a bigger impact and help more people? And I was saying that sounds cliche because I need to find a new way to articulate that. But that's the reality of it is how can you make a bigger impact? How can you help more people? Right. Because the rich, they're going to keep doing what the rich do. But we have to catch up like we know the stats. The black net worth is supposed to go to zero by the year 2053. That's 30 years from now. That's when I'm supposed to be retired, like (laughs) traditional retirement, right? You too, 30 years from now. How are we going to retire, but nobody else is going to be retired with us? That's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. So I had to take like a literal chip on my shoulder and say, yo, we got to change this because that can't be right. That the math... The math can't math like that. We've got to change it. We've got to we've got to shift it. We have to figure out how to create this impact and share this information. And that's one of the reasons why I was really happy that you came on our podcast, that I'm able to come on your podcast because this information that we have. I'm hoping that it will reach somebody new and will spark a new thought in their mind for them to be the generational, you know, catalyst in their family. You do you think that that is true? That that the the net worth is projected to be negative, and do y'all? And, and what do you think that we can do if it is true? Those those numbers scare me. Like to say that the white net worth right now is only one hundred and eighty eight thousand and to say that the black net worth is close to around twenty thousand dollars is really scary to me. Like to think our numbers are honestly that low because the average house in Atlanta is selling for three hundred twenty five thousand. So it's like, dang, like we don't even own our houses like nothing. Like I, I gave this stat to somebody and he was like. Dang. So I said, um, cause the net worth for, for a black household is somewhere between like 17,000 and like 22,000. So I used the 17 number and he was like, dang. So he was like, that means that like the husband got like 10 racks in his bank and like the wife got like seven. He was like, and that's the net worth. And I was like, yeah, pretty much like assuming they don't have any debt. That's what we're saying. He was like, that is crazy. And I was like, it is crazy. Like it's really hard to believe that, but I know for a fact 
that I'm humbled, like, especially when I go out of the country, but even here in the U S when I go certain places, like where I grew up, I hate going there because I'm like, I literally call it the great depression. I'm like, this looks like the great depression. If I could depict it, the great depression. And it reminds me of like, okay, that's why that number is the way that that number is. But the problem with that number being the way that it is, is that it doesn't give people stability. It doesn't give them peace of mind. It doesn't give you the opportunity to really just live your life in a comfortable state. It doesn't give you the ability to think outside of your next meal, outside of your next paycheck, outside of the next bill that needs to be paid. And you get stuck in this very vicious cycle. And then it just bleeds down through your entire generation and your entire family tree and your legacy. And it just leaves us in a very tough position, creates a very bitter feeling for everybody involved. And I just want to see us do better. Those numbers are interesting to me because um, it's like there's people who are on, there's Black people who are in different sides of that spectrum. So there's Black folks who have a six-figure net worth, and then you have Black folks who have negative net worth. And interestingly enough, they can even be in the same family. So I have aunts and uncles. I have an uncle who's a millionaire. I have another uncle who's a millionaire. And then I have uh, uncles who are struggling and aunts who are struggling. And it's just interesting because I see those stats. And what's, what frustrates me is they they kind of project it as a blanket for all Black people. And the problem with that is it makes it seem as though blackness is the just is the reason for that network and not the actions that you're taking while black. And so I think in order for us to crack that code, we have to reshape how all of us think. And a lot of people are out there and they're thinking, I'm going to just work this job and I'm going to just keep putting money into my 401k if they're even doing that. I'm going to just work my job and I'm going to just get by, pay my bills. And that's not going to cut it. That's why people have to have that side hustle, that business that turns to something that can like blow up and dramatically increase their net worth. And so like when I hear it, I think we got to get real. I think that's the solution. We got to get real. There's a lot of patty cake. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot of blaming. It's a lot of finger pointing. And if we continue to do that, we're going to continue to get more of what we're already getting. But we haven't had that hard conversation. We haven't. It's like, oh, well, when this person gets in office, things will change. Or when they pass this law, things will change. And we're just doing nothing but waiting. And waiting is not doing it. And the the cool thing about it is the black folks who aren't waiting, waiting, they're getting to it. We don't have to change no laws. We don't have to elect nobody new into the office. So all those things are irrelevant. What matters is the action that we're all taking. And we don't take that action unless we reshape our thinking. Somebody guessed how old you are. And they said 29. And somebody else said that you seem very mature. So they think you're 30. I thought you were like mid 20s, though. Because mm. so, you're really peppy. I was like, she's like got to be like mid 20s. So late twenties, late twenties. Nobody got it, but all right. Nobody got it, but it's I knew. Cool. I was like, it hasn't seen thirty yet. All right. Um. So what <laughs> are the? <laughs> so uh, I like stand up. You, you like Dion Cole? I've heard, I think I've heard the name. That's the guy with like the the spiky hair who has like a, a different kind of voice. Yeah, he's on like Blackish. Yeah, I know you're talking about. So he has got this one joke where he was like. Hey, who's in the room that's 30 or older? You know, everybody cheers. And he's like, remember when the world used to believe in you? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I see where we're going with 30. I understand. I'm not 30 is lit. Here, but, 30 is lit. But it sounds like you, you just said you, you lose your pep at 30. <laughs> I didn't say you I, I didn't say you lose your pep. I said you have a different kind of pep. I do. <laughs> When the lights come on and, you know, the, the mic is in front of me, I, I got to put on a show. It's, it's good, though. No I, I like it. People are watching because of you and your energy. Some people get in this show and they just like it's real monotone and it's real just like dry and don't nobody be watching that stuff. Um, yeah, I know. Because I, I flipped through some of your episodes. I was like, oh, yeah, they got these. <laughs> He's boring. Um, next. But uh, for me, you guys, if you really want to judge me, if you like YouTube search me, Jacqueline Shattuck, you'll find the first podcast interview I ever did. Terrible lighting. I had no pizzazz. Like I should go back and watch it. It was just bad. <laughs> it was just bad. And it gets viewed a lot because I was speaking directly to financial advisors. But yeah, it was it was really ugly, guys. So you have to learn how to be on camera. You got to go back and watch your film, right? Like I played college basketball, so I believe in like watching your film to get better. So I would I would go back and watch my interviews or listen to my podcast and like see, okay, how can I get better? Like, yeah. and I watch other people and I'm like, yo, that person is boring. Don't <laughs> 
I was going to ask if you played college basketball. What position? Guard? Wait, why did you ask me that? That's random. Because every girl that I know who was crushing it in life right now was a college basketball player. <laughs> that is wild. I don't know what it is. Name drop. Shannon Steele. Um, there's a girl who owns the 7-Eleven. She didn't play basketball. She played golf, oh, um, but still tired. a competitive sport. Um, Shannon owns a hotel. Um, I have a friend I went to law school with. She's crushing it. She played at Villanova. Mm. Um, who else? There's somebody that really stands out. Uh, the girl who is doing real estate, her name is like Jill or something. She's on YouTube. She played basketball. It's very common thing. You know why it's so common? Okay, this is where I get to plug my skydiving addiction. So it's it's have you guys heard before like put this in the in the comments even though i can't see them have you heard before that your skills transition so employers will be like if you ever read like through some of their like uh job postings they'll say yeah we like to hire military and ex-athletes and people will just kind of blow through that but it's because your skill set literally transfers through life yeah so i have a friend who is like scared to take the leap like into full-time entrepreneurship but has a business that's doing really well and if they were able to shift their focus i know they could take it through the roof and so i was saying i was like you know what you need to do you need to go skydiving you know why because that experience is going to translate to what you're doing in the rest of your life mm. so you're really really scared to go skydiving go skydiving get through the hurdle of it get the experience okay the adrenaline is amazing i highly wait i don't know if i could recommend that it's kind of a risky activity but i have lived through it five times and i feel amazing but go skydive like get through that activity through that entire like hurdle that process and then look at your business again, like look at what you're trying to do, because just like as an athlete, that skill set transitions over when you shift your focus. The same thing happens as a business person or entrepreneur yeah. you shift that focus and you have that same drive. Right. Like that's a big part of why I'm able to get up early in the morning, because I used to have to get up really early and be at practice at 5 a.m. Right. So you just transition that over into the rest of your life. And yeah. there you have it. That's so true. That's have so true. I haven't, but you make me want to book it right now. Miami. <laughs> I can't go to, Miami. I'm not I'm nowhere near Miami, but there's a place that does skydiving close to where I am. What about indoor skydiving? Does that count? No. Uh, if you're really, really <laughs> scared, you can start there. But um, no, I mean, I do recommend it. Um, it's a lot of fun, honestly. Every, like everybody it. should try it one time. I like the fact that it's not just for fun, but it, it conditions you to take risk. It conditions you to do things that maybe not a lot of people are willing to do that seem crazy. Like, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? Why would you jump out of a perfectly good job? So it's like, it's Ooh. interesting. Let's let's title that this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it's, it's the reality of it. Like, why would you why would you do that? And the thing that made me comfortable the first time was you, you know, you got to jump with somebody until you've taken like, I don't know, a thousand jumps or something like that. So the person who was jumping with me, I was like, how many times have you done this? And he said, uh, I don't know. I said, give me a rough guess. <laughs> he said, probably like 3,200 times. I said, 3,200 times? He said, yeah, and I only died once. I said, huh? <laughs> he said, no, clearly I've never died. He's like, and I've done it probably 3,200 times. So that made me feel a lot better. I said, all right, cool. 3,200 times. He's never died. I like those odds. So took the jump. How much does it cost to do that? Skydiving is yeah. to me inexpensive. I think in Miami is my favorite place to go, but I've also been other places in the country. Um, I think it was $95, seventy five, ninety five dollars. Skydive. Just a hundred bucks to no, I'm saying that's pretty cheap to be jumping out of an airplane. That's what I think. And it's a good time. <laughs> I spent more than a hundred bucks at Top Golf. Right. So right. yeah, so you um I paid extra. So they really get you on the video footage. Right. So they'll have a GoPro and that's what they'll tax you on. They're like, if you want your footage, it's an extra hundred and fifty dollars. So in the beginning, I was like, nah, I don't want the footage. The dude was like, all right, cool. But you're jumping with like a group of 10 people. So he's like, I don't have anything else to do. So he's like, I'm going to just take the video for you anyway. He's like, if you like it, you buy it. If you don't, you don't. So that's where they taxed me at. Right. The mm. very first time that I went. But um, yeah, it's like a hundred bucks. I think it's worth it. Wow. That's cool. So before we wrap, I want to ask you about uh, flipping businesses. What is that? I mean, I know what it is. I'm asking. Like... An activity I don't recommend. <laughs> really? No. So I had my hand in 
what I would call flipping small businesses. So literally finding, betting small businesses, purchasing them, and then selling them pretty quickly mm-hmm. for a profit, obviously. Um, so I did that a couple of times. It's kind of a headache of a process because there's a lot that goes on with a small business. Like, so think about it like this, bought a barbershop. The barbershop had 12 employees. So it's not as simple as it sounds, right? Like uh, Wall Street can make that process sound very simple and um, big like hedge funds or private equity firms, like they make it seem really simple. And it's a lot simpler when you have a lot more money. So yeah, participated in that. It was cool. Got the net worth up pretty quickly, but it was extremely stressful. So I would recommend real estate, guys. Can you give us an example of your your best one? Purchase price, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I use SBA, right? So it's kind of the same way with most investments. And you really have to understand the ROI calculation in order to make small business flipping or or even um, just like house flipping makes sense for you. So with the small business, so we purchased this barbershop. It was right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm sorry, it was a hair salon, full service. So purchased this hair salon and it did have about 12 employees in it. And I purchased it for, so the purchase price was like 375, but because of SBA, I only had to put down like $20,000 because of SBA. And so what a lot of people don't know is with a SBA small business association with the small business association loan, they allow you to put down less, right? So it's kind of like FHA. And with that, there's, there's always this component, there's different ways to finance purchasing a business. Okay. And there's always this component of an SBA loan that you have to have and it's seller financing. So what happens is the business owner who is selling that business, they have to finance a, a portion of that sales price to you for a few reasons. So the first reason is SBA wants to know that their money is going to be guaranteed, right? So by the seller saying, hey, I will finance you this portion, that means that they think that they're going to get paid because they know that their business will have continuity. So let me put it into numbers for you. So 375, you purchase this business for 375. SBA says, all right, cool. We're going to give you 300,000. You need to bring a $25,000 down payment. And then your seller needs to finance another 50,000 of it, right? So what happens is you end up making a note to SBA every month for X amount of dollars. And you end up making a note to the seller who financed that portion of the business for X amount of dollars, right? And those terms are negotiable with the seller, Um, So it's kind of like FHA, right? Like if you purchase a home on an FHA loan, the seller has to be okay with you purchasing the home on an FHA loan because it's, you know, more red tape, essentially more hoops to jump through with an FHA versus a conventional loan. So it's kind of the same with SBA, right? So there's a lot of different components to it and moving pieces. But if you're able to exercise that SBA, then you can purchase that uh, business for a really cheap price. So what does that do that increases your return on investment when you go to sell it, right? Because if you purchase that business with only $10,000 as opposed to $80,000, then when you sell it, potentially you have a, a, a higher you know return on your investment. Like a higher cash on cash type deal because you only have so much cash out. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Barbershop, how much did you guys buy it for and how much did you sell it for? So bought it at 375, held it for about eight months, made some changes to the way the business was run, got some new clients into the business, which is that's really like the main thing is like, how can you increase cash flow? Right. So how can I get the business cash flowing more? And then how can I convince the buyer that this business is going to continue to cash flow at this higher rate, given this short period of time? So bought the business for 375, sold it for 550 within a about eight months. It was a lot of work. It wasn't just me. It was the team of us. But, you know, if you're able to get in and do that, I highly recommend it. It is just very difficult because it's very risky. You have a lot of components in that. That's why I don't do that anymore, because it's a headache. And like I said, it's risky because what happens if your employees quit? You know, something happens with funding, another, you know, shutdown, like all of these things. Right. It's all these different risk factors that go into it. So um, it's possible, but it is risky. 
So I'm, I'm pretty sure you've seen this because you seem to be in tune with what's going on in the streets. But um, there's a comment made that it's hard for women who are successful and have a high net worth to find a man. I knew where this was going. Do you think that that's true or do you think that's a myth? I love how entrepreneurs in their podcast, like everybody has made this pivot and I know for sure they're going to ask something about relationships. But no, I love it. Um, so the question is, is it hard for women to find solid relationships being businesswomen? That's the question? Yes. So it's funny because I know we're running out of time, guys, but last story. Okay. So it's funny because I was dating like at the end of college and um, started like, you know, just talking to this guy. And uh, I think he called me. I don't think I had an iPhone, so he didn't FaceTime me, but he calls me He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I just got off work and I'm cooking. And he was like, you can cook. I heard women in finance can't cook. I was like, <laughs> where do we come up with these things? Like, you know, you can literally do anything that you want to do. And I don't think, I think, first of all, humans miscommunicate most of the time. So I don't think that it has to do with her being a businesswoman that would set her back in any way, shape or form from having a successful relationship. Um, so just to answer your question straightforward, nah. <laughs> I don't think any women who are attractive are finding it difficult to find a man. I think if yeah, she has, yeah. if she's attractive and she has her stuff together, that's probably just like an added bonus. Those are the women that I see getting locked down the most. A dude who finds a girl who has her stuff together, who's an asset, who adds value, they're locking up that quick. That's, they're like, that's how I feel about that. Right. I think that I think that we will say that about women who are successful um, in terms of them like not finding a relationship. But sometimes it really doesn't have to do with her being successful. It has to do with, you know, her miscommunications or she may have some you know traumas that she went through and she has a poor selection. Right. She chooses people who don't choose her. That happens. Yeah. So I can't say that we can attribute it to her being a successful businesswoman. And it could also just be a hater comment because haters all, all, all over the place. Like maybe somebody's just intimidated that she's attractive and that she's doing better than him and that maybe she doesn't want him. So she's like, oh, you can't get no man anyway. You know, like when a dude is like trying to holler at a girl and she's the best thing in the world until she rejects him. And then she's like ugly and her feet stink. It's like that part. Yeah. <laughs> um, man, there's so many tweets that you have that I wanted to ask you about. Um, rapid fire. This one says, I'm not saying everyone has to use a credit card for daily spending. I'm saying that that is what financially people, financially savvy people do. Whatever side of the equation you're on is up to you. Mm, bars. <laughs> that's my, that's my response. Bars. Cause that's the reality of it. You have a lot of people who are like, why would I use a credit card to get one to 3% back on cash rewards and I do, 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 do. Well, you're not making enough money yet, sir. You need to get your money. Up. Mm. Once you start spending more money, you'll realize how those rewards work. Like, think about it. If you have a business and you spend 40 grand a month in your business and you spend that on a credit card and you get, let's call it $4,000 a month in cash back. Wow. That's amazing. That's $4,000 that you weren't really supposed to have. Right. So yeah. if you didn't spend on that credit card, you wouldn't have had that. Yep. You said y'all are literally serial entrepreneuring yourself to death. <laughs> Seriously, your energy only goes so far. You're just creating multiple distractions at this point. Focus. <laughs> Bar. <laughs> <laughs> bars no the reality is like some people are serial entrepreneuring serial entrepreneuring themselves to death so i had a lady call me she called for a consultation right and she was like yeah so i'm starting this business and i'm like bet favorite thing to talk about let's talk about it how you gonna make this money sis she said oh yes yeah, so i'm starting this brokerage right as a as a real estate person she was like, then I'm starting a cooking show. I'm opening a life insurance thing. I think I'm going to do Toro and Airbnb. I said, huh? So you're going to leave your corporate job and start all five of these at the same time? <laughs> Who has the energy for that? You don't have the time or energy for that. Okay. That's that's what we not going to do. All right. So y'all are serial entrepreneuring yourselves to death. All right. Focus on one thing. And once that one thing is doing its thing, then you can start to pivot. But it's got to be one at a time. The real blessing is what you're able to do with the money you have. Hey, isn't that the truth, though? Like that is the real blessing. 
Um, Shans actually tweeted this. I can't even take credit for him, but he was like, you know, some of y'all are asking for a hundred thousand dollars and that's just not enough because you can't bless anybody else on a hundred thousand dollars salary. Mm, that's deep. Bars. Yeah. And the last one out of the many, many ones, I just like this one. I think it's a good place to end it. It says you are programmed not to believe in your potential. You say, hear me out. As a child, you're born believing you can walk when you clearly can't. You're taught not to believe in your potential as you get older. Kill this narrative immediately. Hey, kill this narrative immediately. Think about it. You go to school and we talk about it all the time. You go to school and at school, they teach you to do X, Y, and Z, right? They put us into a box is what everybody loves to say. So you are born believing in yourself. You are born believing that you deserve food and comfort and and happiness. You're born believing that. You're born believing you can walk. And then the world, or sometimes, unfortunately, it's your parents or the people around you. They teach you that, like, nah, don't do that. Pipe down. Nah, you can't be a financial advisor, sis. You gotta, you gotta sit down, be humble, right? Stop telling women to be humble, but that's what happens like in life. And so you have to believe in yourself more than anybody else believes in you in order for things to happen the way you want them to happen. So I think it's important that we kill that narrative immediately. Nice. Make sure you guys follow her. These tweets are really interesting. And I was just scrolling through them. You don't tweet that often, but when you do tweet, it's a solid tweet that should be retweeted. Um, What does wealth mean to you? Wealth means the ability to bless myself and and others, right? And so in order to have blessings for myself, I have to be able to bless others. And I want to be able to use wealth as my tool to do that. What is your favorite business book? Favorite business book? Mm, I think everybody should read. There's a couple that I think everybody should read. I think Traction is a good one. I think Traction is a really good uh, business book for people. Um, what sets apart successful financial advisors or financial planners from those who give up, fail, or never get started? For people who give up, fail, or never get started? Yes. It's that promise you make to yourself, baby. Got to promise yourself that you are going to be the ish. If you're not it right now, you're going to be it. Nice. Nice. And uh, the last question is where can people find you, follow you, and support what you have going on? You guys can find me on all social media platforms at Jacqueline Plans, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E and the word plans, P-L-A-N-S. No, it's not my last name. <laughs> my name is Jacqueline Shattuck. But yeah, you guys can follow me there. I have a course that will be dropping in the next couple of weeks. I'm really excited for that. It's the Never Broke Again Formula course based on me making a promise to myself at 17 that I would never be broke again. And so I'll be teaching people how to build generational wealth the right way in that course. So I know you got the course game on lock, but let me come in and do a little something with the people, you know. So y'all stay tapped in with me at Jacqueline Plans. Great conversation. Um, I was locked in and people have been viewing the entire time locked in. No, not a lot of in and outs. So you definitely came in and you delivered. Um, I appreciate you for taking time out of your day, especially considering the schedule change and also me flaking last time. I didn't recognize the name for some reason. Um, and I was also in the middle of something. So look, nevertheless, look, we definitely made that. up for it. Y'all heard that? He told me I got to do better marketing. <laughs> so she only tweets once a day. Put some respect on my name, okay? <laughs> Check the reels on Instagram, though, dude. I will. Yeah. I will. Um, make sure you guys, you can find all the information in the show notes and make sure you support what we have going on. Um, the options course, the freedom pack, all of that really cool stuff. Um, and I'll see you guys here again. My name is Charles Oglesby, also known as Todd Millionaire. We're signing off. Dope.